Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's uh, Pesach is uh, coming up, and um, there's uh, two 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 different things I, I'd I'd like to discuss. Um, I'll I'll tell you the first thing, but we'll do that uh, second. We had um, a, uh, a a a panel discussion yesterday, and it was uh, it was interesting. I thought the 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 topic, which was. Uh, Proposed by Rabbi uh, Tzvi Freeman, which I, I I thought it was a wonderful topic, was if Moshe were here today, if Moses were here today, what would he liberate us from, and what miracle would he do to perform it, to accomplish it? Right. So, so um, I want to just give you some highlights from 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 that discussion. Um, but before that, I, I want to discuss um, something else, um, more just. Uh, you know, we always say that that whatever is going on in the parsha, that's what's going on in the world. And um, the the Lubavitcher Rebbe referred to it as as living with the times. Um, and I heard Rabbi Wolfson say one time so beautifully that if you um, that Hashem takes the the letters of the weekly parsha and he weaves them together into the fabric of reality. So you whatever you're seeing going on in the parsha is really like very much relevant in the world. And um, sometimes we see it very clearly, sometimes we don't see it so clearly. I remember, I'm just reminded of one time, um, but if you look, it's there. I don't know if you remember, years ago there was a, a scourge that kind of came on the world that was like very strange and scary. It was called um, uh, uh, mad cow disease. And uh, what it was, uh, they, they found out that basically what it was was it, they were using as part of the, the food for cows um, um, dead cows. So, so cows were eating um, dead cows. And that was part of their food. And then they contracted this disease. And then they, it, was, it, was, it was a mess. They, they had to kill large you know, portions of flocks and, and all sorts of things. Anyway, um, I was discussing this idea of everything is in the Parsha. And so, so, so it came up. Where is mad cow disease in this week's parsha, <laughs> right? And this was this was a while back. But I, I thought about it, and it was the parsha where um, Yosef interprets Paro's dream. Mm. And what was Paro's dream? It was about cows eating other cows. Wow! Right. Wow. So it was it was right there. So again, you know, you you have to have the the eyes to see it, but it but it's always there. But sometimes it's very obvious. So this week it's very, very obvious. Um, we, we, we have, um, the last two weeks we've been reading about uh, someone who has tsaras. Tsaras is, is popularly translated as leprosy, but we're always told immediately, but it wasn't leprosy. So what was it? It was, it was a leprosy-like condition, but more intriguing than that, it was a... Um, a physical manifestation of a spiritual ill. I'll say that again. It was a physical manifestation of a spiritual ill. Um, and what's even more intriguing about this is that we don't have it today. And, and the reason is sort of surprising slash depressing why we don't have it today. Because we're not on the spiritual level to contract it today. In other words, you see... Something that, that is, is sometimes hard for people to understand in terms of spirituality, the whole physics of spirituality, if you will, um, 
because it's a little bit counterintuitive. But the idea is, as the, as the Rambam says, that as a person becomes sort of goes higher and higher in spirituality, the, the judgment for that person actually becomes more exacting, more precise. So the, the kind of the Western way of looking at it is that God, anything that I do, any mitzvah that I do, any good deed that I do, I'm doing you a favor. Right? This is how people think. And so the idea that I'm doing a lot of good things, I'm doing a lot of favors, and, and in exchange for doing a lot of favors, I get judged more exactly? Like, what sense does that make? So people don't really, people don't really understand. Let me give you another way of, of understanding it. Imagine that you have like, like a super white garment, right? If you have like just, like just a little bit of the mustard from your pastrami sandwich gets on your, on your super white garment, it's very obvious to anyone who looks at you. If you're wearing a black shirt and you get like a little mustard, okay, it's not such a big deal. No one can really see it. Your shirt is already black. But if your shirt is white, it's very apparent. And so this is the way to understand what the Rambam is saying. That as a person becomes more elevated spiritually, they become pure and more white, if you will, because white, remember the Kain Gadol wore white garments, right? So this is, this is the, the, um, the sort of the manifestation of purity in this world is, is, is a white garment. So, so, so anything that's um, kind of uh, contrary to it becomes much more obvious and much more apparent. You know, you see this in, 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 in other areas also. Rabbi Tzadok HaKoyin uh, brings down a, a very interesting uh, thing, which is, you know, if you talk about tzaddikim in general, if I were to ask you, like, you know, what's a tzaddik, right? You, you, would, you would say, well, and, you know, we would translate that as a righteous or a holy person. You would say, well, he's a, someone who doesn't do anything wrong, and he's, you know, he's bringing down a lot of, like, uh, you know, shefa, a lot of bracha, blessing into the world. So, but you would imagine it as, as something across the board, right, in terms of all of their life activities. But Rav Tzadok HaKain points out in the Gomorrah that actually a, a person can be, have the, 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 attain the status of tzaddik in the area of one mitzvah. And then that would be actually a, an accurate description. So, so a person might not be a tzaddik in general, in terms of their entire life, but there might be the, a mitzvah where you actually have earned the status of being a tzaddik. So I remember a neighbor of mine who is not quote-unquote religious, right? Whatever that means. But um, she told me this story one time, and it stayed with me because I thought it was a good example of this. She said, you know, you go into the supermarket, and I guess supermarkets even have it today, but even when I was a kid they had it, which was candy bins, right? So you have like either like barrels with different kind of loose candy in it, or sometimes they'll put them in like plastic containers now, right? And there are some people who feel as though they are entitled to take free candy. <laughs> like, okay, so it's one candy, so I'll, you know, it's a, this is, it's not really for sale. They're giving me candy. They're not giving you candy. They're selling you candy. You know, so you, you don't really have the right to take a candy. It's not like your grandmother's candy dish in her house that you've walked into, you know? 
This is a business. So this woman told me, she said, I want you to know something. I never in my life took a candy, like, like for free. I never did it. She said, one time I did it, and I bit down on it, and it cracked my tooth. Whoa. And I said to her, you know, this is really a, an example of what Reb Tzadok HaKoyin is talking about. Because in this area, because I'm telling you, in general, she, she's not what you would call, you know, observant, you know, in terms of the, the mitzvah. But in this area, she was a tzaddik. You know, she never, she like was very conscious. She did it like with kavana that she never took. And, and here you see the Rambam's words that, in, in, that, it's, that the judgment is more exacting in that area. Right? You know, you can think of it in another way. Um, which is that, that if, if someone who's like, um, if someone who is like very great, let's say he's someone who's really what we call, um, you know, among the gedolei ador, meaning the, the spiritually speaking among the leaders of the generation. So this is not that many people. It's, you know, it's a few people, but these are like really like the, the spiritual, you know, generals of, 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 of the nation. If they do something slightly wrong, okay, so we have one paradigm of understanding why that would be the case that they would be judged maybe more harshly. But I'm going to give you another way of looking at it, which is that their influence is so great and everyone is looking at them so much that what might be a little wrongdoing is broadcast across, across the world, essentially. So, so even though it would be, for me or you, a small infraction, because no one's really looking at our activities so much, for them, where everyone is very much concentrating on all of their activities, it broadcasts a very loud message. So again, that would be another way of understanding what the Rambam was, is, is saying, that the, that the judgment is more exacting for someone like that. So again, this is in, in, in contrast to the Western kind of notion, which is, hey, God, I'm doing you a favor. Anything that I do is like basically, you know, you know, you should thank me for. So I do all this good stuff, and now all of a sudden you're being more careful with my activities. See, but this is it's it's based on such a self-centered, narcissistic, arrogant approach. This idea, but but it's very prevalent. It's so prevalent that it sounds logical. So 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 now let's return back to the idea of tsaras that as a people, because we're so distant r- right now from, from, from the Beis Amigdash, from the Holy Temple, and all the ongoing... Remember, the, the, to, to give a very strange example for you, the, the, the Beis Amigdash was like, basically like a dry cleaners. It was like a giant washing machine, you know? And it was able to take all of the um, wrongdoing of the world, basically, and it was able to kind of fix it on an ongoing basis. So the washing machine has been broken for 2,000 years. You know, so, you know, you get used to piles of laundry and now it doesn't look strange to you anymore. Right? So what's a stain here and what's a stain there? We're just, oh, I look, I see piles of dirty laundry. In fact, so much so, I don't even know that it's piles of dirty laundry. See, this is, this is, this is the level that we've become desensitized. And as a consequence of that, Speaking Lashon Hara, which would have normally given me, like, wrong speech, which would have normally afflicted my person, 
I'm not even eligible to that anymore because I'm not even close to that spiritual level where it would be relevant to me. So, so it's not in the world, but the fact that it's not in the world isn't a great thing. Normally speaking, if we, you know, we talk about the eradication of smallpox. Thank God, that's a fantastic thing. But in a weird way, the fact that we don't have tsaras anymore is, is not a great thing, you know? By the way, one of the best, best teachings I ever heard, and just, it, it just touches my heart so much from Reb Shlomo Karlobach, he says, you know, part of the fixing of the person who spoke Lashon Hara, um, you know, bad speech, um, about other people, things like this, that uh, they would have to be isolated outside of the camp, the encampment. And so, so Reb Shlomo said, you know what it is? When a person speaks Lashon Hara about another person, says like, you know, gossip is such an unprecise term, but we'll use it anyway. When a person gossips about another person, What's really going on, whether they're conscious of this or not, it's irrelevant. What's really going on? The person is trying to take away that other person's friends. You hear that? That's a very, very heartbreaking thing. You're trying to take another person's friends away from them. That, that's, that's what Lashon Hara is. And so what is part of the fixing of that? If one wants to, you know, be cleansed of that, they have to be isolated, all alone, by themselves, and they have to feel okay. You know what it is? Why don't you experience what it is to have no friends? So, and then when you kind of live with that reality a little bit, then you take your your speech a little bit more spirit, more 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 more, more seriously. So this is um, a long introduction to, to really kind of, again, this idea of living with the times, looking at what's going on in the Parsha, and we, we see what's going on in the world. Um, because Pesach is coming up, and the Ari HaKodesh says that Pesach is actually a contraction of two words, Peh, which means mouth, and Sach, which means speech, or, or to speak, Right? So Pesach actually means the mouth that speaks. And if you think about what the primary, there's basically, um, the, the one, or let's say certainly one of the primary um, mitzvahs of Pesach is to say the Haggadah, right? That's the, the, the story of leaving Egypt. Now Haggadah comes from the word, from the commandment, um, uh, to, to say over the story to your children. That's where Haggadah comes from. Lehagadata, right? Um, so that's all about speech because you speak the story, right? And they say that even if you're all alone, then you're, you say the Haggadah. Um, to yourself, right? And you ask the four questions to your to yourself. Because the speech is actually necessary. And remember, Pesach means that speech, the mouth that speaks, why is it the mouth that speaks? Because speech itself was in exile. 
just like the Jewish people were in exile and in enslavement, the quality of speech, the ability to communicate with each other was also in exile. Bless him. So this is the rectification of speech. Okay, so now we say, okay, now what are the Parshas that we're reading for Pesach, which is the rectification of speech? Oh, Parshas Mitzorah. Okay, now it makes perfect sense. That's the whole cleansing of the person who didn't speak properly. And remember, we, we said um, from the Zohar that the, the explanation for the person who brought the offering for fixing their speech, this was one of the steps of the cleansing process, was two turtle doves. Right now, a, a, a bird squawks, like a bird has this quality of like speech. And you would bring two. Why two? One would be killed because that symbolized the type of speech that you shouldn't do. So you want to end that type of speech. But then the Zohar says something fascinating, which is, it's not just what you said that you shouldn't have. It's what you could have said that you didn't. The positive thing that you could have said that you didn't say. And that second bird actually goes free. You fly it out because that's, that's and it can fly around, right? That's, that's the thing that you could have said, right? That's the positive thing. Okay. So, so we see like a very, very strong intersection between, um, between Pesach and, 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 and between the Parshas that we're reading right now. Now I want to tell you a story. It's a, it's a, it's a classic story. Um, about proper speech um, from the from the about the Chofetz Chaim, um, you know, who is one of our greatest tzaddikim of the last uh, hundred years, um, and um, you know, and, and more than that, but that's that's when he lived is is what I mean. So 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 this is a true story. So the Chofetz Chaim lived in Radin, um, and the there was a. Uh, a coach driver was taking him home. And the coach driver is making conversation with him. And he says, where are you going? He says, Radin. He goes, Radin, that's, that's where the Chofetz Chaim lives. You know, he's, he's, he's so great. And the, and the Chofetz Chaim, he doesn't understand that he's talking to the Chofetz Chaim. The Chofetz Chaim says, he's not so great. And, and the coach driver says, no, no, no. He's very great. What are you talking about? How can you say that? He's one of our greatest leaders. And the Chofetz Chaim says, listen, I want you to know something. I know him personally. And I can tell you that people make a much bigger fuss about him than they, than they, than they ought to. And the coach driver gets so angry at him that he takes his stick and he hits him with it. And he says, how dare you talk that way? Right? And, and he lets him off and the Chofetz Chaim goes home. And the coach driver is in Radin, and he figures, listen, while I'm in Radin, I, I might as well go and see the Chofetz Chaim, right? So he goes to the Chofetz Chaim, and he sees that that's the person from the coach, and he faints. And the Chofetz Chaim tells him, he says, listen, you know what? You were right to hit me with a stick. Because the truth is, the halacha is, and this is the end of the story, the halacha is you're not allowed to speak Lashon Hara against yourself. So this is, this is very, very important. And I want to use this as a jumping off point to, um, to, to talk about life in general, because I think that there's some very, very important lessons that we can learn from this. Um, 
So, a lot of people, you know, they, they use themselves as a punching bag. And, and you're, you're, you're simply not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do it. And, um, you know, people think that, like, you know, okay, I understand there's certain halakhas, there's certain laws when it comes to other people. I can't take your money, right? I can't hit you. You know, all these things, they, they, these things make sense. But me, I'm my own property. You know, one of the most interesting things I ever heard was that it says that in, in Pirkei Abos, it says that a person has to have a, a, a nice face, meaning to say a yafis panim, meaning that um, a person should accustom themselves to smile, right? And not walk around with like a frown or a, like, a, like a bitter look on their face. And the explanation that I heard for that is, is, that, um, is that your face, like for instance, would you think that um, it's proper behavior or even allowed at all to take spray paint and go up to a billboard and just to spray graffiti on it or spray graffiti on the side of a building? You're not allowed to do that. So your face is actually in, is what we call in the Rishus Arabim, in the public domain. Like your face is like a public billboard. So if you're walking around with like a scowl on your face or a frown on your face, you're, that's like, who gave you the right to do that? Really, who gave you the right to publicly deface the, the environment? So, but people think that I'm my own property. You're not your own property. You're not your own property. This is why suicide is called murder. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the exact punishment of murder. You're, you're, why? I'm me. I can do whatever I want with me. No, just like you can't murder another person, you can't murder yourself. It's equally murder. So, so a person can't speak against themselves. Now, there's, I want to, I want to now flow with that, so to speak, okay? Which is that, what that really means is, what that really means is, is that a person has an obligation to love themselves. All right? But, but I'm going to just give you a deeper shot, a, a deeper understanding why. Because you hear people say, um, you know, you've got to love yourself or you're not going to be able to love another person until you love yourself. And, you know, and all sorts of self-esteem comes from loving yourself. And there's many, many, many good things that comes from this. Okay? And we're going to talk about also having... Another component, which will keep the self-love in check in a moment, okay? Um, but but I want to suggest another very uh, important um, outcome from from a person loving themselves, and and that's based on the idea that life itself is a Rorschach test, and you know, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but just in case you're not. One of the um, sort of bread and butter psychological tools um, uh, that, that, that psychologists use are called Rorschach tests. They're a series of ink blots, and they, what you see in these ink blots, even though they're not drawings of anything, they're just sort of random ink blots, 
but it reveals what it is that you're thinking about and what you're concerned about, right? So if you just see, um, you know, that's, uh, what is that? What do you see in this inkblot, right? And you say, I see my mother standing over me with a knife. <laughs> that's going to tell the psychologist a lot about what you're thinking about. You know, because it's not a picture of that. It's just eight watts, right? So, so my father shared with me the, the, the history of this, which I, I, I just love because I, I love just, just the organic process, how this kind of came to be such a staple in, 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 in the world. Dr. Rorschach, there was a, a Rorschach, and he would walk on the grounds of the, whatever they used to call them then, sanatoriums or whatever it was, these clinics, and he would walk with one of his patients, and he would notice, he would, he would you know, he would talk, and he would say, look at the clouds, what, what does that cloud look like to you? And he noticed that there was a correlation, a connection between what they saw in the cloud and how they were feeling. And then he institutionalized this with the inkblots, right? So that, that's how it came to be. But what, what this is, is a very famous thing in, in psychology. We call it projecting, okay? So what projecting means is, is that, for instance, if um, you're sitting by yourself um, in a, a restaurant, say, right? And then there's someone uh, at another table who's laughing. If you feel insecure about yourself, like here I'm sitting at a restaurant by myself, that person must be laughing at me, right? That's called projecting. You're taking your insecurity and you're putting it on the other person, right? So that's the dynamic that's how we see that life itself is... How do you know what that person is laughing at? You know, a lot of times I laugh because I think of something funny. And I, I might even be looking straight at you and laughing. And I'm, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing because I'm spacing out. I happen to be looking in your direction. But I'm thinking about something that has zero to do with you. And if you ask me at that moment, why are you looking at me? I would say, I'm sorry, I didn't even know I was looking at you. Right? So, so... So life is a Rorschach test. How you see the world is largely dependent on how you feel about yourself. So now let's get back to this idea. We started with the idea that it's, it's, it's against halacha, it's against Jewish law to say bad things about yourself. So that leads to this other notion of the, the, the mitzvah of actually loving yourself. You have to actually love yourself too, right? But why do you have to love yourself? So what I'm suggesting is the following. Is that you, unless you love yourself, you will not see the goodness of God. That's the point. You see, there's a reality. There's a baseline reality in the world, which is that God is good. And that everything God does to you is for the good. Even if it's painful, even if you don't understand it, it's good. God is coming from a very good place. Even if it's painful, it's still good. Because God is fixing something. Or he's giving you the tools in order to be able to be successful at a later date in your life. Or it's from a past lifetime and 
You, you came into this world to have that fixed. The whole reason why you're here is to have that fixed. So we don't know. Or it's for the sake of your children or your grandchildren. And you'll never find out in your lifetime. But their life or their, the, the life of your children's children could be saved because you're going through this thing right now. So, so everything is happening for the good. Now, that's reality. That's Torah. And you will not be able to live in the real world. You will not be able to access actual reality unless you love yourself. Because unless you love yourself, you won't be able to project that love onto the world and see God's love, which is reality. So, so you, you understand that this is actually profoundly beyond the idea of it's good to have self-esteem. It, by the way, it's essential to have self-esteem. I don't mean to belittle it, but what I'm trying to tell you is the implications of this goes far beyond self-esteem. It allows you to actually live in reality in the real world and to access the love that God wants to give you. Okay, so we said that there's going to be a, a, a counterpart to this, right? See, whenever we talk about Ava, whenever we talk about love, there's a partner to love that is always present, right? And that's Yira. Yira and Ava. Yira is like awe. Awe is like your mind is being blown at the greatness of God. Right? And there's two forms of awe, by the way. But, but you know, there's a lower awe and a higher awe. The lower awe would be translated as fear of God. But ideally, we're living in a more elevated level where basically we don't want to do anything wrong. Not, not because we don't want to get whacked. Because we don't want to do anything to to disturb this relationship between us and God. Because we see the greatness of God, the majesty of God, right? So, so that's, a, that's the higher level of yira, the higher level of, of awe. And they talk about um, yira and ava. The rabbis compare it to the two wings of the dove, right? You need both to fly properly, right? If you want to be a healthy spiritual person, you need the equal measures of yira and ava. And oftentimes you can do a, um, like a, you can give yourself a spiritual self-exam. Okay, here's how the spiritual self-exam works. You ask yourself, you know what? You know, I notice that you aren't keeping Shabbos. This is your dialogue with yourself. Why are you not keeping Shabbos? Don't you know that, like, uh, there's really, that's a very important thing to do. Well, um... The thing is, God loves me so much that he doesn't care whether I do it or not. Okay, so that, that's, that, now you get your, that, now you can process the results in the laboratory, in the spiritual lab. You say, okay, we did the test. Okay, this person needs more gyra. <laughs> this person has a little too much, like your pH balance. This person has a little too much ava going on. They need a little more gyra. They need like to understand that they're standing before the king. They're standing before the king. They don't just decide what the like like the king says to you. Please give me some um, 
some toast. And it's a big honor just that the king's asking you for anything. And then you come back with like, um, you know, with some soda. I think really what you want is soda. Wait, what are they? No, the king asked you for some toast. You don't decide what that really actually means is something completely different, right? So the proper year is taking it very seriously. Okay, now let's take it from the other side. Imagine it's sort of like, you know what? You haven't left the house in a few days. Why? I'm so depressed. Why are you so depressed? Because whatever I do, I know that God is going to zap me. God is just waiting for me to do anything wrong so that he can basically kill me. Okay, and we process the results in the lab. <laughs> we get them back. We go, ah, this person needs more Abba. <laughs> this person needs more love. They have to more fully appreciate the fact that God loves them and that God wants good things for them and that God is not waiting to zap them. Okay, so th- that's like a, a general overview. And, and you can see, and you monitor your activities. You say, you can see, if you're a little depressed, you realize that you have to get more vitamin L, right? You need a little more, you need more some, some more love, right? And then if you're getting a little too uh, loosey-goosey with uh, your lifestyle, you need a little more, you know, yira, right? So a little more awe. And this way you balance yourself, and you keep yourself healthy, and these are the two wings of the dove, Right? Because then you're able to fly. And then you're healthy. Then you're healthy. Okay? So, so we talked about the importance of self-love. Self-love is going to allow us to access the true reality of the world, which is God's goodness. Okay? Because you, life is a Rorschach test. You're going to project your feelings about yourself onto the world. Okay. But now we always need to keep that in check. We need the yira. That, that balances with the Ava. Because you don't want to be too in love with yourself. Right? So, so how do you do that? So, so the Yira manifests itself as being humble. That's, that's, that's um, humility. Now, now again, what, what does it mean to be uh, humble? Humble means, and, and again, we, we always reference um, um, uh the Gomorrah, the, the, amazing, the amazing conversation the sages had when, when Rebbe left the world. They were sitting around, they said, you know, when Rebbe left the world, humility left the world. Like, no one is, there's no, there, there's no such thing as humility anymore. And then one of the rabbis said, um, I'm humble. And then all the other rabbis said, oh yeah, he's humble, it's good. We still have humility in the world. <laughs> and I love that because you would think anyone who, who would say I'm humble, they would have thrown their chairs at him, like, you know? Like, what are you talking about? The fact that he, A, said it, and B, that everyone agreed and was happy again, is, is very counterintuitive. But it tells you the real definition of being humble. We think that humble means to be a liar, a holy liar. And let me tell you what I mean. That, that someone denies what it is that they've done. You see, humility in Torah, you, if you are great, and you are legitimately great, you have to acknowledge your greatness. You say, if you did something, you, you actually did it. Right? You don't have to brag about it, but you, you, you have to understand, at least in your own heart, that you actually accomplished it. 
But you have to also know that without God's help, you wouldn't have done it at all. (laughs) You wouldn't have been able to do it at all. So you did it. It's real. But I wouldn't have been able to do it at all without God. And you know what the truth is, is that if I really thought about it, I probably could have even have done it better. But not to the point of then denying that you did something good. See, that's, 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 that's when humility gets off the tracks and it becomes something else. It's not humility at that point anymore. It's self-destructiveness or self-hatred or low self-esteem. It, 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 but you realize, you know what, I could have reached more people if I had maybe tried a little bit harder. Right? Or I wouldn't have been able to do it at all without God's help. Okay. Now I want to suggest the correlation in terms of the raw shock test and projecting. Okay, What that true humility inside is going to give you in terms of your, how you're going to be able to see the world. Okay? You see, we, we talk about it a lot. And it's actually going to, this is going to be a transition into what we talked about, um, the answer that I gave yesterday anyway, in terms of what would Moshe liberate our, us from, right? And what miracle would he perform, okay? But we're not there yet, but we're getting there. One of the, one of the things that we have to um, allow ourselves to do is to really try to the best of our ability to um, see how expansive the world really is, to see how infinite the world really is, because this will allow us to live with the greatness of God. And this is why when we ate from the tree of knowledge, um, death came into the world. Because remember, we're not anti-knowledge, I mean, the Jewish people are the greatest exemplars of knowledge, right? So what's the connection then? It seems very strange. What's the connection then between eating from the tree of knowledge and death coming into the world, right? It seems like God should have told us, eat from the tree of knowledge. And by the way, we were going to eat from the tree of knowledge, but first we had to eat from the tree of life, and that we didn't do. Or it would have been for Shabbos, Whatever it was, we were destined to eat from the tree of knowledge, but we did it in the wrong time, and, 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 and that messed us up, you know? You don't feed a baby, like, you know, steak tartare, like, oh, here's some, a very great delicacy, it's raw cow meat. Perhaps my one-day-old would enjoy this fine French cuisine. You know, it's like they can't process it. You have to wait for the right time to do the right thing. You know, you don't build the ceiling before you build the foundation. <laughs> Although God did it, because it said, it says, "Breshis bara es hashamayim ve'es ha'aretz." In the beginning, God created the heavens and then the earth. The sages say, "Look how great God is. Who builds the ceiling before they build the floor?" This is amazing, actually, right? You know, it's so simple. How many times do we see the, read the first passage in the Torah? But, you know, there's so much to it. It, it never ends. The, the, the problem is, is that there's a certain type of knowing which is a type of death, where you think you know, but you don't really know. 
you think you know, but you don't really know. And then once you know, you cut yourself off from further exploration because you already know. You know? Can you imagine, like, there's the greatest museum in the world and you walk into where, they, where you buy the ticket and you go, okay, so I've been to the Louvre. And then you walk home and you go, tell everybody, I went to the Louvre. It's not so great. You didn't even enter and you didn't see one painting. But in your mind, you went there. Are you lying? You're not lying. You went there. You didn't even see the beginning of what this place was. But you're telling everybody I went, it's not so great. This is the type of knowing where a person thinks they know, but they don't know. Now, you will never fully know the world. You will never fully know the world. And as we quote the, the Kutzka Rebbe all the time on this, because it's so... I think for our generation, this is, in my opinion, one of the most important Torahs in, in, in the world, is that the Kutzka Rebbe says, I would never worship a God I understood. Because if I completely understand you, God, then I'm also God. So what do I need you for? <coughs> by, by, virtue, by virtue of the fact that God is God, God knows more than you. And by virtue of the fact that God is God, you will never know everything that God knows, by definition. So now one can have one of two reactions to this. Oh, now I'm angry. Or, if that is in fact the reality of existence, I love the fact that you know more than me. (laughs) I love the fact that there's mystery in the world. I'm vexed, I'm frustrated that there's certain things I'm never going to be able to know. That's not great. But I love the fact that it's endless, that I'm involved in this absolutely endless creation. And I love that, and I'm embracing that. Okay, so now listen. Life is a raw shock test. If I'm humble, if I have humility inside me, that means I never feel as though I completed something. Or if I did it, I only did it because I had the assistance of God. When I look at the world now, I'm going to see something endless. Because I'm going to realize that I'm not the complete master. And I'm going to be able to look at the world because of my humility. And I'm going to be able to embrace the endlessness of it. And the mystery of it. And I'm going to love that because I also love myself. So I'm going to see God's goodness. And I'm going to see all the unanswered questions as the great mystery and infinity of life. And I'm going to love that. See, there's, there's more to it than this. Because the rabbis teach that the goal of knowing is not knowing. See, the problem is, is that we are hardwired to think that we know. Have you ever seen like like young kids like you know I'm talking about like young kids like when they start to learn a few things and you try to tell them something I know that already why do kids do that it's not because they're idiots it's because we're hardwired to think that way 
In other words, we have this thing, spiritually speaking, one of the ill effects from the eating from the tree of knowledge is that we have this component within our soul or makeup or whatever it is where we think we know, we automatically go to thinking that we know. This is why people are so judgmental. Why I look at you, I know what you're thinking, I know what you're doing, I know what's going on there. Why are people like that? Because people are hardwired to think that they know. Why does it say, don't be judgmental? Because it says, God is the only true judge. Because God has all the facts. You will never have all the facts. So you shouldn't judge, not because you should be a nice guy and not be judging. Don't judge because you will be wrong. Because it is impossible for you to have all of the information. Only God has all the information. So I'm saving you the trouble of being wrong by telling you not to judge to begin with. Not so that you should be a nice guy. You'll also be a nice guy, by the way, if you don't do it. But that's not the point. I'm trying to save you from our own inherent hardwired arrogance of thinking that we know all the time. So, so they say that the, the goal of knowing is to find out how much we don't know. Now, that's, that's a very hard concept sometimes to wrap your mind around. So let me try to explain it better, okay? So I'm going to tell you something, and my, my guess is, is that you probably don't know this piece of information, okay? It's a pretty obscure piece of information. That's why I feel confident that you probably don't know it, okay? So you're about to learn something new, all right? I would say most of you are about to learn something new, okay? Which is that um, in the 1920s in Shanghai, there was a type of cabaret, cabaret music which was very unique and extremely popular. And I've heard some of this 1920s Shanghai cabaret music. It's like totally out there. It's like nothing I've ever heard in my life before. Okay? So you know about pop. You know about jazz, rap, right? Did you know that there was 1920s Shanghai cabaret music? That that was its own musical genre? Okay. So now you know something you didn't know before, right? Okay. Now listen. Do you know who the leading groups were? <laughs> Do you know who were in the leading groups? Do you know what their, the names of their albums were or what the art on their album covers were? Do you know where they performed in Shanghai? The street names? Or how you would get there? Do you know the architects who built the buildings of the clubs where these Shanghai 1920s cabaret performers performed? Do you know where to find that music today? Do you know of anyone singing it today? And where they live and what their website is so that I can download some and like listen to this whole thing. All right. Imagine, you didn't know that you didn't know that. A moment ago, you didn't know that you didn't know that. And the only way you found out how much you didn't know was to find out a new piece of information. So you learn something. There's a whole genre of music. 
And that was an opening now for this giant field of what you don't know. So now, understand this in terms of life, in terms of science, in terms of like all sorts of strange swimming creatures on the bottoms of oceans all over the world, in different parts of the world, in terms of all the mechanics of all sorts of crazy stuff. Imagine how much you don't know. So the goal of learning is just to give you an entree to what you don't know. So imagine I'm going through a forest, right? It's a very dense forest. That's the learning. That's the learning. Okay, I'm learning this, 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 this. And then the forest clears and I see this wide vista, this huge canyon and mountains and clouds and ocean, right? And I got to this giant vista, this beautiful view. That's the not knowing. (laughs) And I got to that through the knowing. (laughs) So this is now like, this is the relationship that we have to be in with God. Because we're never going to know God fully, because God is infinite. But we can begin to understand and fathom little bits of the extent that we don't know. And then that can put us in touch with the wide expanse. And that that comes, you reach that through your own humility. By being humble inside, like you learn something new, And then that gives you access because you're humble. Not like, oh, look what I know now. No, it's like, whoa, let me think about that. Whoa, now, wow, look what I don't know now. Wow, thank you, God. I didn't realize how big you were. I'm discovering it anew. And then you can stay in this, and then that increases love because once you see the wideness of God, then you love him even more. And then you want to be even, have even more yira before His Majesty. And then the love leads to more awe, and the awe lives, leads to more love. And then that's a holy relationship with God. That's a fantastic place to be. That's where everyone should be. Okay, so now I want to share with you this thought. So, again, Rabbi Freeman asked this question. We had a little panel on it yesterday, me and Rabbi Shlomo Seidenfeld. What would Moshe liberate us from if he were today, and what miracle would he perform to do it? So, here's the answer that I gave. I said that he would liberate us from our eyes. And I told that to my daughter. She got very upset. She said, I like my eyes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I said, no, I'm not talking about having your eyes taken away from you. (laughs) Talking about the the negative effects of, of, of one's eyes. And that's the idea that this world is so much bigger than what we see with our eyes. It's so much bigger than what we see with our eyes. And if we could really see where we were, who were we were standing before, you know, I mean, God obviously doesn't have a body. He makes bodies. But if we could just see the, just the, the, the hugeness of, of the universe, right? You know, it says that um, 
just to give one small example, the Gomorrah says that the, uh, that the world of souls, like after 120 where a soul goes, that it's as close to this world as two hairs on the same head. And you know, if you ever take like um, cups and you stack them, or you put one cup inside the other cup, right? Like with paper cups or whatever it is. That the, that the, that the world of souls is like, it's like one cup inside of another cup. In other words, here we have this reality, but the other reality is right inside. Like, a, like, like this is one cup. The other reality is like the cup being put into this cup. In other words, the, 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 the souls are right in front of us. This is what the Gemara says. But we don't have the eyes to see it. And by the way, one of the reasons why we don't have the eyes to see it, the rabbis explain, is that we, we would go crazy if we were able to see all these things. This is why the, the um, central nervous system, Rabbi Kaplan explains, the, the central nervous system is there not just to help us to perceive, but to block out perceptions. We don't think that it's there to block out perceptions, but it is on some level. But if, if our eyes could actually be opened to what was really here, This would be the ultimate. This would be the ultimate. This would, this would, this would, this would be, we would never, we would love each other so much. We would never think of doing anything wrong. We would, we would, we would be free. We would be truly free. Um, you know, Something kind of popped into my head because I was trying to do research to prepare for the uh, for this presentation. And after I thought of um, the eyes, I said, "Oh, he would he would fix our eyes." And then I, I woke up the next morning, Shabbos morning, and it just popped into my head. Look in the shame Mishmo, which is uh, the uh, that's the Katska Rebbe's son-in-law. So I looked and, and I saw this and it made me really happy. He was talking about something else. But he quotes Rashi. See, when did the Egyptian slavery begin? So there's different explanations. But the, 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 one of them is it began when Yaakov Avinu died. And... Um, Every single Parsha in the Torah, between one Parsha and another Parsha, there's a white space separating the Parshas, with one exception, which is when Yaakov Avinu dies. It goes, there's, it's closed. It's called Parsha Stuma. It's closed. And the other, one Pasuk goes right into another Pasuk, but they're two different Parshas. So this is unique. And Rashi's asking the question, why is it closed? Why is there no space? Why is it closed? That's the keyword, closed. And he says that the reason is, remember, this is talking about Yaakov Avinu leaving this world. It's closed because they, meaning the Egyptians, closed up the eyes and hearts of Israel through the anguish of enslavement. And I was like, whoa, what was I just talking about? That Moshe would come and he would open up our eyes. And what's the beginning of the enslavement of, of, of Egypt, of Mitzrayim? 
is the closing of our eyes. That we are cutting ourselves off from really this world and, and that is the beginning of enslavement. Now listen to this. Rashi says in another place. He quotes the Medrash Tenchuma. He says, The eye sees and the heart desires. Right? The eye sees and then the heart desires. So now let's return back to this Rashi. The Egyptians closed up the eyes and the hearts of Israel. Right? Because once the eye becomes closed, the heart no longer desires. Right? The heart becomes closed. See, it's the inverse of, of the other idea. The eye sees and the heart desires. But if the eye no longer sees, if it becomes cut off from this world, then the heart also becomes detached from wanting to reach out and understand the infinity of the world more. So I'm suggesting that maybe the way Moshe would liberate us today is he would open up our eyes. And then Rabbi Freeman asked the question, what miracle would he perform to do? So I wanted to suggest the following, which is, you see, the word in um, Hebrew for I is ayin. And ayin is a very interesting word because it's also a letter. You see, and it's, interestingly, it's a silent letter. And that makes sense because the eyes don't talk. <laughs> right? So the ayin is silent. The ayin is the number 70. 70 represents the number of nations in the world. And it represents the illusion that there are powers other than God in this world. Right? So there's another silent letter, which is Aleph, which stands for the oneness of God. Aleph is the first letter of the Aleph base. And all the Kabbalists talk about, and I'm going to give you an example in a second, how the rectification of the letter Ayin is the letter Aleph, that you go from this silent illusion of many powers, which is the Ayin, that's 70, to the Aleph, which puts you in touch with the oneness of God, right? Now we know that God created the world with the Hebrew letters. And the way that we understand that in, in sort of a more modern way is that, that the, ener- the, 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 the letters are different energy wavelengths. And God combined the different energies in order to create the world. Okay? So what I'm suggesting is that the miracle that Moshe would perform is that he would take all of this ion energy in this world and he would harmonize it and he would turn the letter ion into the letter Aleph. So that he would harmonize all the competing energies of the world. Remember, ion also means I. And he would rectify our eyes so that we could see by turning the ion energy into the Aleph energy so that we would perceive the oneness of God. Now I want to go deeper and show you really how far this goes. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now there are different ways to say the word tree. One of the ways to say tree is Elon. And Elon has the number... um, the, the gematria, the numerical equivalent to the number 91. 91 is an important word, a number in, in Torah, because 
91, besides being the gematria of the word amen, and you, you'll keep that in the back of your mind as, as you hear the following, it's, it's basically two names of God added up. It's the Yudke Vavke, um, which is the inf- infinite aspect of God, and it's Aleph Dalid Nun in Yud. This is also pronounced Adonai, but that's God, master of nature. That's number 65. So 65 and 26 is 91. Okay, so basically another way of saying that, or maybe a more user-friendly way of saying that, is 91 is two names of God which show that God is master of the heavens and the earth. That's an easier way of expressing it, okay? So when we ate from the tree of knowledge, we made a separation between these two names of God. Okay, we parted these two names of God in terms of our perception, right? So that we thought that, that nature, right, that's like Aleph, Dalad, Nun, and Yud, nature is separate from God. God dwells all the way up there, and maybe he's paying attention, maybe he's not. Why would he pay attention? Because we're so small and insignificant, and God is so great. Why would he care about us? So this fundamental rift entered into our consciousness where we thought there's this real which is real and then there's God who's an idea. This is the deepest exile. This is the deepest, 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 deepest exile. Thinking that God is an idea is the deepest exile as opposed to it's the reality of existence that we dwell within. So now listen to this. With this you can understand a very Kabbalistic teaching that I heard in the name of the Ari. The Ari says that the, that the fixing of the Eitz Hadas, Eitz means tree, that's another word for tree, a more common word for tree, Eitz. That, 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 that we have to turn, you ready for this? Eitz is spelled Ayin, remember Ayin? Ayin is the I, right? Ayin Tzadi. We have to turn the, we have to spell eights, get to the place where we spell eights, Aleph Tzadi. It would still be pronounced eights, but we're turning the Ayin into an Aleph. Right? That's what we talked about, that Ayin is 70, that's the multiplicity of nations, of the illusion that there are many powers, and we turn it into Aleph, which is one. But now look at this. When you spell eights with an aleph, eights, aleph is one, and sadi is 90. It becomes 91. When you spell it with an ayin, it's 160. But when you turn eights and you spell it aleph sadi, now it becomes 91. These two names of God, the God beyond and the God of nature, right? All of a sudden, they come back together, and we realize that God, there's only one God, and that God rules the entire world, every aspect of the world. Do you see what's, you see, this is so amazing how the rabbis speak, that he just says that eights, you have to spell eights with an aleph. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Well, maybe now we do, a little bit, right? But remember, remember, 
Anytime you think you know something, now you got to remember how much do we not know? <laughs> because all these things ultimately are just metaphors, right? Like, in, in ex- because we're talking about other dimensions, and we haven't lived in these other dimensions. So, you know, so let's take a moment to love God. Wow. Also to be humble, right? To have yira, like, oh, whatever I know, it's so much more. <laughs> okay. I'll just wrap it up with just a call to action. There's, um, there's very few examples of this in, in Torah where something can be 100% kosher one moment, and the next moment it's 100% forbidden. The exact thing, right? Bread is one of those things. So we want to get rid of all the bread, right? If you, you can, like yesterday at the, at the at Shalashudas, at the third meal, we were, you know, holding up a piece of bread saying, look, I'm eating it, this is, a, this is the biggest mitzvah right now. Shalashudas, to eat bread at Shalashudas, it's, it's huge. The Gomorrah says that that protects you from, from the, the, all the pain that happens when, in, the, in the final apocalyptic war, keeping the mitzvah of Shalashudas, of third meal. I mean, what do we know? I mean, you know, but if a week from then, next Shabbos, I'm eating that same piece of bread, the same piece of bread, it says a person's soul, God forbid, is cut off. How could it be? So I heard Rabbi Seinseltz in, in his name say something very amazing, very humbling, very beautiful. He says there's certain things in our life, he got into it a different way, but this was the thought, there's certain things in our life that at one point they were kosher, but maybe now they're not kosher. <laughs> like in terms of our own development and our own progress, as a thinking, feeling, spiritual being. Maybe earlier in our process, right? Like, you know, we were saying, ah, I love dirty jokes, they're so funny, right? But now, today, really? Now? No, not, no, not anymore. This other behavior or that other behavior, I, I, it was good for me then. And maybe for you at that moment, it really was kosher in terms of your personal development. But now, maybe not. And we have to ask ourselves these things. And this is the process when we light the candle and we, we, we search for chametz, we search for the things we're not supposed to have in our house, because each one of us is a house, right? And we look, but, but, but the... The completion of this teaching is the halacha, now I'm telling you halacha, is that when you search for the chametz in your house, the, the things you have to get rid of, you're not allowed to use a torch. A torch gives a lot of light. You have to use a candle. A candle gives a little bit of light. So I wanted to say on this, you know why? Because if you hold a torch to yourself and you see everything you're doing wrong, you're going to fall apart. <laughs> It's not going to work. You use a little candle. <laughs> okay, you see one or two things. And then that's, that's, that's how we do it. Not by burning down our house. Right? 
because that's that's already the Yitzhahara masquerading itself as a rabbi. Right? The the, the, the is saying, Oh, I'm gonna help you out so much right now, I'm gonna tell you everything you're doing wrong. <laughs> you go, Oh no, you leave that conversation, you can't get out of your bed, right? You're floored, you're immobilized. Right? So we don't use a torch, we use a candle. We see one or two things that we can that we can improve. And also, please, please, please take advantage of burning your chametz. You know, there are places in public where you can do it because it's, it's, for me anyway, it's one of the most wonderful moments of the whole year. You pray that all evil should be destroyed from your own life, from your own heart, from the world. And you can cry your eyes out as you're putting the, the, uh, the bread products into the, into the fire. I mean, it's really a very strong moment for prayer. And I, I recommend that everyone really tries to utilize it. Um, and uh, and one, one, one final point um, is, uh, God willing, this year we'll have the Korban Pesach. And one of the halachas is, is that the, a family has to consume the entirety of the Korban Pesach. Right? You have to eat the whole thing. Um, and that's a mitzvah. And then in the same verse, it continues and says, after you have to finish the whole thing, within the same verse it says, and if you didn't finish the whole thing, <laughs> so the, this is a second mitzvah. It's very strange, because the first part of the verse told you you're not allowed to have anything over. And the second part of the same verse says, and if you have anything left over, you got to burn it. That's called nosar. So one thing that this tells you, which I think is amazing, is that there are certain mitzvahs in the Torah you can only keep if you break other mitzvahs in the Torah. How do you, how do you keep the mitzvah of... Uh, so, so for instance, for instance... So, so what is this saying? So what is this saying? You see, in AA, in Alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous, which, thank God, I don't have direct experience with, but, but I know they do a lot of fantastic work and have helped many, many people. They have an expression, uh, falling off the wagon. That means that um, when someone says they're not going to drink anymore, and then they drink, and that's called falling off the wagon, Right? But you see, in Torah and in mitzvahs, if you fall off the wagon, you fall onto another wagon. <laughs> because it says, don't have anything left over. So if you had something left over, then you fell off the wagon, right? You're not supposed to have anything left over. But I have something left over, I fell off the wagon. But now comes another mitzvah, and it tells you what to do if you, if you had something left over. So now you stay within the mitzvahs, right? If you don't do a mitzvah, then there's tshuva. There's always another mitzvah that you have. So you're never without a mitzvah. Because God is everywhere. So wherever you are, you're with God. So I'm at the lowest place, well, but you're still with God. Oh, I'm still with God, so then I can pick myself up again. Yeah. Okay, so should all meet in Yerushalayim or Kodesh? Yeah. And uh, 
God should bless us. God should just bless us that we should be able to leave um, the the all the Mitzrayans, every everything that's holding us back, everything that's holding the world back, and we should know that we're not allowed to speak against ourselves, which means that we have to love ourselves, you know, so that we can see God's love in the world. And we have to also be humble so that we can see God's infinity in the world, right? And, uh, and we have to fix our speech because remember God created the world by speaking the world into creation and that we create worlds with our own speech for each other in terms of how we perceive the world. So let's create a more beautiful world for ourselves and for everyone who we come into contact with. Uh, 